Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. A fun fact for today. On this day, 401 years ago, the Pilgrims set sail on the Mayflower from England. All 102 passengers landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts, almost two months later on November 11th. 1620. So that is your history wow. lesson for today. Wow. That is such a fun fact. Isn't that a fun wow. fact? Wow. Oh, um, that's kind of cool. Fun fact, and I have no idea if this is true, but my dad always says that we, my family came on the Mayflower. Really? Yeah. You actually traced it back? That oh, would be pretty legit. I, I've never fact checked this. <laughs> <laughs> Just my dad says. Dad and says I'm like, it. okay. It's be true. I mean, it makes sense. We're very, very waspy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Roots go all the way back. <laughs> well, Virginia, another fun fact is that we have Gloria Taylor in studio with us today. Welcome, Gloria. Thanks, y'all, for having me. Great to be back in the podcast studio. <laughs> Gloria is the communications manager for the Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. She is a pop culture expert, and definitely very problematic. We can totally give you that title. <laughs> I really, honestly, can I put that on my business card? Yes. 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 <laughs> because if I'm going to be an expert at anything, I hope it is pop, pop culture. culture. <laughs> <laughs> Not the things I'm actually supposed to study here at work. <laughs> oh, We're so excited to have you back on the show, Gloria. We have lots to break down. Lauren, tell us what we have queued up. Up on today's Problematic Women, we talk about our favorite looks, favorite in quotation marks, from the Met Gala and the controversy over AOC's Tax the Rich fashion statement. We also explain the significance of California's gubernatorial recall election and break down what you need to know about Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's testimony before Congress. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. The who's who of entertainment and society were in New York City on Monday night for arguably the most exclusive party of the year, the Met Gala. While the Met Gala usually takes place on the first Monday in May, the event was postponed in 2020 because of COVID-19. Is it gala or gala? Well, see, people say it different ways, and I actually thought about we could have that debate on this show. Oh, I've, I've, I've meant that on air. Oh, you meant that on air. Okay, well, well we're still going. We're gonna, <laughs> is there a more this pretentious in? way to say it? Because I definitely gala. think we should I think it's gala. Oh, we're going to the gala. Way. The gala. Because <laughs> gala sort of, I don't know, something yeah. sounds like a, a barn a little yeah, bit it's about that. Like, I'm a, the gala. The gala. The gala. <laughs> the Met Gala is known as fashion's biggest night out this year's Gala was held in celebration of the new costume exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Costume Institute, which is opening to the public on September 18th. The theme of that exhibit is, quote, in America, a lexicon of fashion, which served as inspiration for celebrity looks on Monday night. A bit of background about the Met. The gala was first held in 1948 as a fundraiser for the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Costume Institute. The event showcases leading fashions from the top designers in the world. The gala raises millions of dollars every year for the Costume Institute. 
In many ways, it's just a highly exclusive costume party for the rich and famous. Tickets cost around $30,000. There were some very bold fashion choices at the Met this year. We will chat about Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dress in just a moment. But first, let's talk about our favorite looks. (laughs) Favorite. (laughs) There was no shortage of very, very bold fashion statements. I personally liked um the guy the rapper what's his name who wore the the uh who wore the quilt essentially the blanket oh well that was that was a three-part outfit right no no no. these are different different. oh it's a meme now (laughs) yeah because i'm like that's brilliant you're going to this bougie event you want to be comfortable (laughs) you just wear a blanket and you're like this is a fashion statement (laughs) it's a new dress with pockets so <laughs> his last name's Rocky. He has a dollar. Oh, ASAP. ASAP Rocky. Rocky. Well, Virginia. Did you just say? <laughs> I'm not the pop culture expert oh here. God. That's Gloria. Wow. <laughs> his last name is not even. <laughs> his last name is Rocky. Well, his stage <laughs> and name. His first name. Virginia, I was like, I think it's pronounced ASAP, but I don't want to say this wrong. Y'all, I am not in the rap world. Well. <laughs> Would you like to comment, pop culture expert? <laughs> I like his blanket, like, though. <laughs> like, were you only allowed to watch, like, the Teletubbies yeah. growing up? So Disney Channel came into play probably <laughs> around the age of 10. Wow. You know, and that's when life got real crazy. Yeah. You know, real turn up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll introduce you to Tyga next. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I like his blanket. <laughs> I like Dollar Sign's blanket. Well, and I thought you were talking about Little Nas X because he started out with like something that was very blankety. It was kind of dress slash yeah. blanket cape situation, yes. which is weird for a man to be wearing. But, you know, Met Gala. Yeah. You do what you want to do. And then his do next outfit like. looked like that the mascot cool. for the University of Central Florida, my UCF Knights, which that is just my – that's my favorite outfit right there. The feels. Yes. And then it got down to a kind of creepy bodysuit. Yeah. It just – it evolved quickly. Yeah. And then speaking of bodysuits, Kim Kardashian's weird – like – Do we know the background of that? Why she I chose don't. to – Kanye you has been wearing – see her face. Kanye's been wearing a lot of that kind of stuff on – in his release parties, right? Yes. Honestly, my first reaction, I thought it was a political statement about Taliban. Wow. But – it was, I guess not. I have no idea. But we certainly got our fellow other political statements later in the wow. evening. Yes, we did. But no idea. Well, and my least favorite was, of course, Megan Rapinoe with that in. Did you see she had in gay we trust? Oh, I'm like, I and how that. can you even trust in gay? Like, what do they do, though? It, that honestly is very revealing. This is, this is the left. This is their religion. This is the things they bow down to and worship. It's, it kind of makes sense. It, it checks does. out. Yeah. No. Which okay. is sad. But I will say, I think one of the classiest couples of the night was Justin and Haley Bieber. They just had a nice look. Class act always. Literally always. Always. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of the outfits are like, I don't actually know what you're wearing at all. But Haley had just like a really classy, beautiful black dress. She looked great. Justin was rocking his thing. I also thought Billie Eilish looked stunning. Oh, It was very classy. What did she wear? It was this huge, long, like, princess poofy dress, but it looked very old Hollywood, regal. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And I don't, like, if you were a woman at that gala, 
Why wouldn't you want to wear just something like Business beautiful? Oh, wow. That is yeah. really like it's like a Cinderella dress. Yeah, it's Cinderella y, yeah. but they're, they're very just regal, I felt like was the word. I almost don't recognize her. She's like, I know. So it's different. so different. I love wow. her. Stan. All right. Well, for all of our listeners, <laughs> if you had a favorite look, let us know on Instagram. Well, and one look that we have not gotten to that we have to talk about is AOC's dress that was white. And it was a nice dress itself. It was, well, it almost but, looked like a wedding dress, but yeah. it, I thought it was, it was a interesting. Rubber. <laughs> yeah, in red. You and a had, lot of other people on Twitter. Don't have to oh, do it. man, I haven't eaten lunch yet. I'm going I'm to sorry. Chick-fil-A. <laughs> but literally, it was just like this white dress, really elegant, really pretty. But then on it, it was so ugly. It said, tax the rich. Okay, actual legitimate question. Was it painted on or was it sewn on? I couldn't tell. I didn't really investigate that. Oh, that I it don't did, know. It did look tacky. Aside from the messaging, we can talk was, about the messaging. It was in big, yeah, big red, bold letters, tax the rich. Uh, kind of an, an interesting statement to make at literally the event that is one of the most elite parties in the world every year where people have paid thousands of dollars to yeah. be there. That's like $30,000 is like two cars for most people. Three yeah. cars even. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> this is our message to, to, to tax the rich. I use cars, people. Yeah. <laughs> Hypocrisy in its actual finest. <laughs> Literally, there's no level of me being surprised at anything that AOC does, <laughs> like, at all. Well, I mean, I think, too, there's the there's the argument, of course, of the hypocrisy, and Twitter was blowing up over that. Uh, but then it's like, okay, let's actually get down to – what uh, what she was trying to say, tax tax the rich. Like, what does that mean? How is that played out practically? And what are the results of that? Historically, what do we see when that happens? Who actually gets hurt when the rich get taxed? I mean, money is unlimited, right? You well, just tax the rich and then there'll be more money and then they'll make more money. It yeah, exactly. it's, just, it's magic. Well, we, do, we don't talk about the fact that the tax code already is super regressive. And thanks to what Biden has been doing with all the spending and the more spending and boondoggle to come, this is going to cause even more inflation. When you go to the grocery store, how expensive things are, this is going to continue. And adding on top of that, let's tax the rich and that there will be a, you know, funnel down effect to average middle-class Americans, but just like this Met Gala, you see the liberals are all about elitism. It's about the – it's not about the working class. It's about um, the ruling class. And the ruling class can go to their gala. They can, you know, pay their $30,000, all be happy together, lecture us about how stupid we are, how we don't know anything, and say, oh, tax the rich, have their party – but in the reality, they're not looking out for the interests of you know real America. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that doesn't it doesn't directly translate. It's not like oh, we tax these individuals that you know make whatever amount a year, and then that directly goes to you know the poor people that need mm-hmm. help. Like there's not a direct funnel there. And from experience, we we know handout programs just further a cycle of more and more handouts. That's it whole other massive conversation <laughs> that we could have an entire podcast series just talking about. Uh, I, I also really thought that it was – there was a bit of irony to this that you know AOC, she identifies herself as a socialist. She advocates for that. In a way, it almost felt like this foreshadowing of what socialism really is, that there is this kind of elite class ultimately that end up ruling and they have the money, they have the wealth, and everyone else – 
doesn't. <laughs> I was like, this is what society would look like essentially if AOC got her way. Yeah. And, and it's the, the thing is they sit there and pat themselves on the back and act like this is such a courageous statement of her to go out and say, there's literally nothing courageous about that. There's nothing courageous about that. Well, I I will to, you know, play devil's advocate mm-hmm. here a little bit. So AOC said she wore the dress because she wanted to start a conversation. So in that sense, has she succeeded because all of America is talking about this dress? Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Except for the fact that AOC fired back and said something to the likes of, I thought about the criticism I'd get, but honestly, me and my body have been so heavily and relentlessly politicized from all corners since the moment I won my election that it's kind of become expected and normalized to me. I just was floored by that statement because she's sitting here responding to the criticism she's getting deflecting and saying that people are politicizing her body. We're not talking about her body. We're debating the merits of a policy that is proven to not be effective and that harm people. That she chose to wear on her chose, body. That <laughs> she chose to wear. And I just think from especially a member who all the time talks about mental health and gaslighting, that that was incredibly manipulative. I mean, it's very manipulative because I'm very hungry and I very much want <laughs> Chick-fil-A right now. <laughs> well, yeah, I... I it's important to talk about it. It's, it's important to address the argument about taxing the rich because we all, in, at the end of the day, want the same thing. We want America to be a great society and that people don't starve in the streets. But they don't realize that their solution just doesn't work. Like, right. And one thing that I've found interesting over the past couple of days, you know, all my friends on Instagram, a lot of them are, you know, liberal social justice warriors, not all of them, but a large majority. And, you know, you're seeing that kind of content posted on Instagram. Yes, queen. Yes. You know, girl power or whatever. Um, I have seen heritage graphics floating around on Instagram stories of friends of mine that aren't D.C. heritage people. Um, and it's particularly that one that shows, you know, do the rich pay their fair share? And it breaks it down showing that, you know, in reality, it's high income Americans that pay the large majority of taxes. Mm-hmm. And I just got so tickled to see one Research is important. Graphics are important. And it was cool to see us being able to you know, push back on this narrative. Um, yeah, I shared that on uh, Problematic Women Instagram stories. So yep. check it's, it out. It's, it's everywhere. It's graphic. Yeah. And it's not just from us. It's from <laughs> other people. They're seeing the truth. They're seeing the light. We yeah. love to see it. And there was a, another study that I was thinking of uh, that Heritage has done um, in light of this whole controversy. Uh, about two years ago, we published a research paper titled It's mathematically impossible to fund the left's agenda. And the whole premise of this was based off this tax the rich notion that was coming from uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren at the time. And so our researchers uh, pulled a bunch of data together and realized that if you confiscated every dollar earned by a taxpayer uh, with income over $200,000, that would not even come close to paying for the host of leftist agenda programs. And, you know, that was a few years ago. Even now, there's way more stuff that they want to fund and way more programs. So it, it's literally not possible. So to act like taxing the rich is going to be our solution to poverty, our solution to climate change, because, you know, that's all, you know, climate change is everything to the libs these days. Um, but take yeah, act like that is a solution is completely misleading and impossible. Yeah. And we've seen that played out in so many cities across America, uh, you know, that have those high tax brackets. And Mm -hmm. we know the way that you lift everyone up, you empower them, you give them job opportunities, you open doors for people to be able to make money, to earn an income, to have pride in their work and what they do. (sighs) 
All right. Well, on that note, (laughs) stick with us because up next, we are moving from all of the drama in New York City and the Met Gala over to California. So up next, we are discussing the California recall election of Governor Gavin Newsom. But first, a quick question for you all. Do you need a job? If yes, then you need to sign up for the Heritage Foundation's Job Bank. The Heritage Job Bank connects conservatives of all career levels to jobs with conservative employers all over the country, and it's free. If you sign up, the Job Bank will send you new job openings every week and invite you to their virtual job fairs and career seminars. The Job Bank team also offers one-on-one career consultation. Signing up is easy. Just go to heritage.org slash job bank and click on register today. California Governor Gavin Newsom has survived his recall election. On Tuesday, the people of California voted to keep Newsom for another year until the 2022 gubernatorial election. Newsom's recall is only the fourth time a state has gotten enough signatures to actually trigger a recall election. Only 19 states allow for recall elections, including California. To trigger the recall election, Californians collected almost 1.5 million voter signatures. California is the only state to now have had two governor recall elections. In 2003, California Democrat Gray Davis was recalled, and he actually lost that recall election and was replaced. And then North Dakota, they had a recall election all the way back in 1921, and the governor was also replaced then. But Wisconsin, when they had their recall election... Uh, In 2012, uh, that governor actually survived. And for those who are a little older might remember, that was Scott Walker. That was a really big deal back in Wisconsin. Sure was. This recent recall election was triggered in California after Governor Newsom kept many businesses and public schools totally locked down for about a year during the pandemic. A lot of people in California were tired of Newsom's policies and wanted to change. But they did not get that change. About 64 percent of Californians voted to keep Newsom and 36 percent voted to replace him. There were a whopping 46 candidates running against Newsom. His most prominent opponent was Larry Elder, conservative talk radio host and columnist. Out of the 36 percent of Californians who voted to boot Newsom from office, almost 47 percent voted for Elder. So the way that the election worked, if anyone isn't sure, you would vote, you would vote first for the first question, which was, should we recall? Mm-hmm. Yes or no. And so if you vote yes, then you vote in the second on who you think should replace should replace him. And this really was historic in many ways to see a state as blue as California decide, okay, we are going to try and recall a Democratic governor. Uh, and, of course, you know, Elder didn't win, but he did earn a significant amount of votes, I think, Um and uh, I think it's it's telling to see Californians, so many Californians, this frustrated and this angry with the way that their state is going, that they actually rallied enough support to pull this election off. I think this entire episode has elements of the hypocrisy of the left. <laughs> and you see that so clearly in the way Newsom has governed the state that it is so encouraging to see people wake up despite the media carrying water for him, despite all of the things going on and say, we're not going to stand for this. Yeah, I was super bummed last night. Yeah. I, I had hope that it was at least going to be close. Yeah. But it they called it 
Yeah, pretty really much early. Away. And I was like, come on, California, you can do it. We had so much hope. It's yeah. like you're cheering on a toddler to walk for <laughs> yeah. the first time. And like, oh, come on. Go, <laughs> go, California, go. Yeah. Oh. Well, we'll see what happens in the future. I think it, it's definitely telling, but yeah. Just not, another not reason. the income we wanted, but. Just another reason Florida is the best state. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, Laura. All right. Well, let's get ahead and chat a little bit about some big news in D.C. this week. So many Americans are asking that big question. What happened in Afghanistan? And on Monday and Tuesday, Congress worked on finding an answer to that question. On Monday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And then on Tuesday, he testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Gloria, I know that you watch most of Blinken's testimony. Do you have any more of a sense now about what actually happened in Afghanistan and why the evacuation was such a disaster? I think that is the absolute hardest part about watching Tuesday and Wednesday was we didn't get answers and Americans deserve answers. All we had was a deflection of responsibility, Blinken standing by his decisions. He was well coached. There weren't too many fireworks, um, just continued stonewalling, a lack of accountability, lies, false choices, and a lot of blaming Trump. Mm-hmm. Well, how much of a joke was it the first day of the hearings, the House hearing, I believe? He didn't even show up in person. No. He Skyped in. He was in D.C. and he couldn't make the drive from the State Department to the Capitol building. My favorite moment of the Tuesday House hearing was when one member said, Mr. Secretary, can I ask you where you are if it's not classified? You're thinking he's going to be in some you know remote part of the world, Skyping in. And he says, I'm at the State Department. <laughs> And it just all of this has just been so harrowing and sad to watch and to sit there and think you literally don't have the ability to come a few miles in the wake of what y'all have caused. I know. Well, fortunately, it was, I guess, made enough of a splash that then he finally came right. to the yeah. Senate hearing. So that was he good. Took he took the, the like $9 Uber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Cross down. <laughs> Uber right. Um yeah, so there's was, there was definitely some more sparks going on in the Senate when he was there. You obviously have a lot more you know, interaction with the, the senators really pressing. Uh, so the cherry on top of everything uh, of the last two days for me was journalists' comments about how this was an all-around partisan hearing. I don't particularly understand what's partisan about both Democrat and Republican senators and members of Congress demanding answers for what has gone on when 13 troops have been killed, there's nothing partisan about that. Mm-mm. To me, what is partisan is the media helping Democrats complaining about Republicans in these hearings being hard on Blinken. That's partisan. So that was in- incredibly frustrating. Uh, there was there were a lot of great questions, though, you know, hat tips to, to Rubio, to Cruz, um, to Johnson for pressing a whole different bunch of angles. I mean, we had so much stuff to work with from why did we abandon Bagram? Why the administration was giving the Taliban a list? Why are we leaving Americans behind? How can we trust you to properly vet these refugees? I mean, the list goes on. Why do we have billions of dollars of equipment left in the Taliban's hands? There's one point where Blinken even said uh, the, the equipment that we've left behind is not going to cause strategic threat to the U.S. or Afghans or any of our allies. And I mean, my jaw hit the absolute floor. Senator Cruz said, this doesn't even pass the laugh test. It's just the whole day was an example of the fact that these this administration is literally living in an alternate reality. 
like how far dissociated from reality do you have to be to continue to say that this was a success, to continue to stand by these decisions and to make statements like that? Gloria, I'm so glad you brought that up. We have some clips. Let's roll them. Just like Jimmy Carter owns the disaster of the Iran hostage crisis, you own this. The Biden administration caused this disaster. It was caused by two things. Number one, ideological naivete and extremism. Repeatedly, Mr. Secretary, in this hearing and also on multiple conference calls over the last month, you keep saying things like the steps the Taliban needs to take to be welcomed into the community of civilized nations. Mr. Secretary, they don't want to be welcomed into the community of civilized nations. They are terrorists who want to murder us. This administration doesn't understand that. Joe Biden doesn't understand that. So Cruz said there that Biden and the Biden administration don't understand that the Taliban are terrorists. Do you think that's a fair statement? 100 percent. You saw over the past two days, over and over and over again, Blinken saying, you know, if we give aid to the Taliban or, you know, recognize them as the government, these, you know, that's conditioned on their actions and, mm-hmm. you know, what they want their role in the international community to be. Are, are you joking me? Yeah. So again, it's these people are living in a completely alternate reality. Just are you watching the news? Are you watching what's happening? Reports of revenge killings. Mm-hmm. Are, are, are you watching? Mm-hmm. Are, are you people woken up? Are you still on vacation in the Hamptons? Yeah. Do you have <laughs> no, any just, idea who no. you're actually dealing with? Right. Here. And, and, that, and that's terrifying, not only just for this situation, but China, Russia, Iran, they're seeing this and laughing. Mm-hmm. And gosh, if we can't assess who our enemy is and what an enemy is, God help us. I think that was so critical that Cruz brought that up because I think that's one of really the biggest uh, continual mistakes that I think a lot of Americans, frankly, are, are guilty of making is not having a fundament, fundamental understanding of terrorism and the fact that you you can't debate and work with these people. They're not a, a nation that's trying to you know establish itself and get in good in the international community. They want power and they are ready to take it by force. Right. Our VP of foreign policy here, uh, Carifano, he all the time says in this part of the world honors power. Mm-hmm. They do not care. They do not want to be part of the international community. They do not want to seat on the Human Rights Council, which is a joke anyway. <laughs> but <laughs> just it, it's, it's, it's frightening to see leaders at the highest levels not understanding the threat or being willfully ignorant of it. And that creates an environment in which we're putting Americans at risk. We're putting our security at risk. And the reality is that is that a strong America that is viewed strongly on the world stage, not as weak, incompetent, and embarrassed, which is what the Biden administration has done to us through this debacle, that's going to be the best for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then we saw that Florida Republican Senator Marco Rubio, he raised concerns during his remarks that Blinken and the American intelligence community that they did not properly assess the threat of the Taliban. Rubio said, if in fact the people in charge of our foreign policy did not see all of these factors and conclude that there was a very real possibility of a very rapid collapse, then we've got the wrong people making military and diplomacy decisions in our government. And here is how Blinken responded per Senator Rubio's YouTube page. Uh, 
we, the intelligence community, did not say that the countrywide collapse of all meaningful resistance would be likely to occur in a matter of days. And, uh, and you referenced uh, Chairman Milley, as I did uh, earlier. Nothing that, that he saw, uh, that I saw, that we saw suggested that this government and uh, security force would collapse in a matter of 11 days. And you're right that I think we need to look back at, at all of this uh, because, uh, to your point, we collectively, over 20 years, invested extraordinary amounts in those security forces and in that government. Hundreds of billions of dollars, equipment, training, advice, support. Uh, and based on that, uh, as well as based on what we were looking at real time, again, uh, we did not see uh, this uh, collapse in a matter of, uh, of 11 days. Blinken and the intelligence community did not see the collapse happening in just 11 days, but it did. And as a result, America was embarrassed on the world stage. So do you all think we have lost some of our credibility among our international partners? And if so, do you think we can get that back? I mean, Virginia is, is water wet. This is the Pope Catholic. <laughs> last time, last time I checked. Yeah. It's just, uh, yeah, of course, like it's it's so embarrassing. And a lot of policy arguments that we have with the left is, okay, I understand that they have reasoning behind it. But this is one issue where it just, I, I wish Blinken would have shed some light on why. But it, it was so, that, that wasn't there. And it, it just, it makes it even more frustrating that why did we do all this? Why was there such failures? And what, what did they think was going to happen? I think that's part of the biggest problem is that did we ignore intelligence? Was intelligence falsified? Were they paying attention? What is going on? And then you get to the point, too, where the way Biden handled not picking up the phone with allies mm-hmm. is shameful and disgraceful. And to then have Blinken sit there and say, oh, I went to NATO. We factored in what our allies were saying as we were making these decisions. Who are you talking to? <laughs> That's not what we're hearing in reports. You know, it, you have damaged America's credibility to a point that no president has done, even since the founding of NATO. It's shocking. Yeah. No, it certainly, uh, certainly harms our, our relationships with so many partners, especially with Great Britain. Uh, and I mean, hopefully, hopefully we can recover. But man, uh, in in the near future, there's really strategic action that needs to be taken to handle this crisis in Afghanistan. We are not out of the woods. And we need to be figuring out and making plans. Okay, how do we move forward strategically? How do we strengthen our partners in that region? How do we make sure that Afghanistan doesn't become a hotbed of terrorism once again? These are things that cannot wait. We have to address these concerns right now. And I'm glad you brought up talking about um, building up partnerships in the region. It's like, do I trust the administration to do that or what mm-hmm. they've just done? No. Is yeah. that what is necessary? Yes. Yeah. You have the Biden administration talking about, oh, you know, now we're going to rely on over-the-horizon capabilities to strike targets and do counterterrorism. Do they know the reality on the ground of how difficult that is going to be and how – um, geographic features, weather, timing, not having bases nearby are going to impact the ability of us to make those things happen? Yeah, doesn't look good. Nope. Well, I'm sure we will have more Afghanistan news. As <laughs> it's just the story that just Keeps never, on giving. Yeah, never gets better. So 
Uh, Gloria, thank you so much for joining us. It's been just so fun to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. Always a blast to be in the podcast studio. Well, we'll have you back soon. (laughs) It's easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle. So if you're looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. Hosts Doug Blair, Rob Bluey, and me, Virginia Allen, bring you headlines and interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. If you're a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. Now it is that time once again. My favorite time of the week. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to... Yasmin Muhammad. If you missed Kelsey Bowler's interview with Yasmin Muhammad on the Tuesday edition of Problematic Women, be sure to go back and check it out. Yasmin's story is so powerful, but also tragic in many ways. She was raised in a very strict Muslim home and then was forced into an arranged marriage with an al-Qaeda operative. She managed to escape that marriage and now has written a book called Unveiled, How Western Liberals Empower Radical Islam. This was such a powerful conversation. I, I've listened to the interview once. I think I'm going to go back and listen to it again because I, I keep catching myself thinking about her story. And uh, it's just amazing everything that she's endured and has had to overcome. And I think one of the most beautiful and also heart-wrenching parts about her story is when she talks about her daughter, when she had this moment when she realized, I cannot raise my child in in an atmosphere where her very life is being Mm. threatened Mm. and she made the choice that she was going to risk her own life and escape with her daughter Uh, just really really wild and i think it gives you a lot of perspective on what some of these afghan women face on on a daily basis and the perspective today is certainly more apparent than ever after talking about the met gala dresses in aoc like that's not bravery yeah what Yasmin did is bravery. And yeah, I, lo- I love the interview. It was just so heart-wrenching. And I also say I love our new format. I love that there's I something know. on Tuesday and then we have today. It's just it allows us to kind of be problematic all week. Absolutely. Yeah. For any of you who have not heard or are just tuning in, Lauren and I have recently uh, relaunched a new format with PW, as we call it, Problematic Women. So every Thursday, we are doing more discussion. We still have our weekly Thursday show. And then on the second and fourth Tuesday of the month, we have a long-form exclusive interview. So we will not have one this coming week, but the following week for that last last Tuesday of September, we will have one. Well, and with that, Virginia, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world, and we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcast. It really does make a difference. It makes a huge difference. Y'all have a great week, and we'll see you next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.